just want to say a quick thank you to Pastor Brown and the elders for giving me the opportunity to share from God's Word with you today. It's, it's a real honor and privilege for me. I have a question. If you were to write a letter to somebody who is going through a trial or a suffering, uh, through a tragedy, what would you say to that person and how would you say it? If your goal was to encourage this person, how would you begin? I know if, if I wrote a letter to someone who was going through a difficult time, I'd try to be sympathetic. I would begin the letter, Dear X, I'm so sorry to hear about your difficult time. It is so unfortunate that this tragic thing has happened to you. I hope and pray that things will get better soon. Yours truly, Stephen. And there is nothing wrong with this letter. If I probably took a poll of our congregation of today, the majority of you would say, I've written a letter just like that, or I've received a letter exactly like that. Our text today comes from a letter that Peter wrote. And the letter is mainly a letter of encouragement to people who are suffering. And what is so astonishing is how Peter opens his letter. Let's take a look at the text. Our scripture today is from 1 Peter. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9. And if you are using your pew Bible, it's on page 1203. And it's going to be our particular focus on verse 3. But let's look at God's word. 1 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersia, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. <clears throat> Biblical scholars believe this letter was written when Peter was the leader of the church in Rome. They date the letter in the early 60 A.D. 
60s AD. And we know that Peter is martyred under Nero several years later after this letter was written. I highlight this because the first century is not a safe time to be a Christian. Faith comes at a cost. As one of my professors said, when you threw your hat in with the Christians, your head went in with it. We know from verse 6 that these Christians are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And I can, I can picture Peter as he, as he dictates this letter to Silvanus, thinking of specific congregations, specific people whom he has met or of whom he has received firsthand reports. He has heard of their faith and of their situation. He's thinking of their suffering, perhaps even suffering himself. And the first thing he does is not consolation or sympathy, but is a statement of praise. And I prefer the NIV here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. We're going to look at four things in this text. First, we're going to look at the nature of Peter's praise. And if you take notes, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. And the three sources of Peter's praise, God's mercy, the new birth, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First, the nature of his praise. What Peter is doing for us is he is modeling for us a Christian response to suffering and trials, while at the same time he is mentoring us on theological truths that when we understand them, when we take ownership for them, they result in praise. One of the criticisms of Christianity is that in order to be a Christian, you have to check your brain at the door before admittance. There's this idea that Christians are shallow unthoughtful, unintellectual, not very sophisticated. That the Christian faith, particularly the more conservative forms, like the conservative congregationalists, uh, their faith is based more on emotion rather than intellect, more on the head than the heart. But Peter's letter flips this idea upside down. He shows us that the Christian faith is a marriage of the head and the heart. His praise is something far more than blind emotionalism, positive thinking, or hopeful optimism. It is a response to truth. And notice, he, he doesn't do it coolly or academically. Rather, it is the truth of the doctrines that overwhelm Peter. It's as if Peter's rationality is saying, if these things be true, then there is only one appropriate response. Praise. Praise God for his mercy, for his new birth, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things have gone from mere concepts to living realities. The rational has overflowed into his whole being. It's like when a daughter experiences her father's love in a profound way. Picture a, a young girl or even a teenage girl or even a, uh, any age girl and her father. 
And the girl knows she is a daughter on a factual level. Now imagine the father taking his daughter in his arms and he whispers to her, I love you and I would lay down my life for you. And the girl weeps. Has she become any more or less of a daughter? No. What has happened? Her rationality, her knowledge has gone from her head to her heart. She goes from understanding the truth about being a daughter to standing under it. This is the nature of Peter's praise. What are these truths that elicit such praise? Well, first, God's mercy. When a person extends mercy, that person has the power to exact justice or make a, make a judgment. And yet, they choose not to exercise that power, and instead, they show compassion and forgiveness. And this is how God has dealt with Peter. And he has experienced it on a deeply personal level. Most of you are familiar with his story, and you remember well that evening when he is in the courtyard of the high priest, where he hits the low point of his life. And ironically, Peter is not brought down at the point of a Roman spear, but by a young servant girl asking him simple questions. As the crowd mills around the fire on that chill evening, Peter finds himself despondent, bewildered. He is wandering through an emotional fog. Everything he has devoted his life to for the past three years has come to a screeching halt. Jesus has just been arrested and he's facing trial. And we all know the story well. Three times when Peter is asked if he knows this man, he denies it. The very person who just days before he has vowed to die for. Scripture records the final excruciating denial this way. On the third time, he calls down curses and he swears to the whole crowd, I don't know the man. Immediately, the rooster crows. And Peter remembers Jesus' words to him and he goes outside and weeps bitterly. Peter knows what it means to fail God. He knows on a very deep level personal failure and regret. But he also knows mercy. After Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and resurrection from the dead, he personally seeks Peter out and he forgives and restores him. Like the daughter, Forgiveness and grace are no longer mere theological concepts, but realities that he experiences at the deepest point of his soul. Hence, Peter can write, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. And this is how God has dealt with us. Because we have put ourselves on the throne of our hearts instead of God. Because we have not stood up for Jesus. 
because we have not kept the moral law. God's justice demands that someone be punished. It says in James that if a man fails to keep the law in just one area, he's failed to keep the whole law. God has the right to punish us, and yet he withholds his wrath. God's mercy, his compassion toward us, is put on full display like we just sang before the sermon on the old rugged cross where he exacts out the punishment that his holiest demand, holiness demands onto his son. Peter writes in chapter 3, For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And God not only extends forgiveness to us, but he also places us on us Christ's righteousness record. So that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' life perfectly lived. Praise be to God for his great mercy. The second truth of Peter's praise is the new birth. And the most familiar story about the new birth is found in John chapter 3 in Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. If you want to turn to your Bibles in John 3, we'll look at this just briefly together. And one of the things I find so fascinating about this story is why Nicodemus is there and who Nicodemus is. Many commentators agree that Nicodemus is not there seeking spiritual advice. He may be curious about this guy, Jesus, but this is not his main motive. Nicodemus's main motive is that he is on a mission from the ruling authorities to see if they can somehow work with this young upstart preacher and bring him into the fold. The commentators draw attention to the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus secretly and he uses the pronoun we. We he he is not spiritually seeking. He says we have come We know that you are a teacher come from God. The second thing we know about Nicodemus is that he is an elite. He's a ruler, a teacher, an expert in biblical law. And on top of this, he is one of the most moral men in Israel because he's a Pharisee. And when it comes to moral living, the Pharisees know how to dot their I's and cross their T's. In today's vernacular, he'd be the the white rich guy who graduated from the Ivy League. He has a PhD. He's wealthy. He's privileged. He lives a disciplined, moral life. And on top of all that, he gives generously to the church's building fund. We would say, this guy has it all together. He is the exact type of person we'd love to see come through our church doors. And yet, Jesus responds to him with something that seems completely off topic. Look with me in verse 3. Jesus answers him, Very truly I say to, say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And you can hear Nicodemus, just his incredulousness. How can this be? And Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel? Are you the expert here? And yet you do not understand these things? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is so brilliant about Jesus' response is that he is challenging the religious scholar in his area of expertise, the scriptures. Jesus makes two allusions here that Nicodemus would have picked up on right away. The first is a famous story in Ezekiel chapter 37. And it's the story where Ezekiel has a vision. He looks out at this valley of dry bones And he is called by God to prophesy to these dry bones. And what happens? A wind, a spirit, the breath of God comes from the four corners, breathes into these dry bones, and they come back to life. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the second is a reference to the healing of the Israelites in the wilderness. The Israelites, again, are complaining and grumbling against God, and he sends poisonous snakes into their camp. They cry out to Moses, and God instructs Moses to place a serpent on a pole, and he says, anyone who is bit by this snake just needs to walk by and gaze up at the serpent. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Can you see what Jesus is doing? He's challenging Nicodemus to think. I am the one these stories are pointing to. You you must gaze on me to be healed from the poison of your sin. Nicodemus, you don't need more moral structure. You can't bring about your own righteousness. You don't need a new teacher to come on board with you. You need a savior. You can't bring about your own spiritual birth. Just like those dry bones couldn't bring themselves back to life. Neither can you. It's a gift from God. The wind blows where it will. You, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, need to be born again. If Nicodemus, a privileged, educated, sophisticated, moral man, needs to be born again, 
Don't you think we do also? Peter experienced this new birth through his encounter with the risen Christ and through the indwelling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And he writes, We are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Martin Luther was much like Nicodemus, a religious person. He was a monk. And as one author wrote, he was incredibly successful as a monk. He plunged into prayer, fasting, aesthetic practices, going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without a blanket, and flagellating himself. As Luther himself said, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But Luther had a problem. He continued to be oppressed by the righteous life God required. And it was while he was teaching a course on the book of Romans that it hit him. And I quote, At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God that comes by faith. Here, I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. The zealous monk, the theological professor, Professor broke through. He realized that his motivation behind his good works was to earn God's approval. He had to repent, not just for the sin on the outside, but for the sin beneath, for the very reasons he did the good things in the first place. Luther realized in that moment, the righteous shall live By faith, grace melted his heart. Luther says the gospel message of salvation through faith by grace is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's why we say around here that we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Application of the gospel to our lives on a daily basis is the main preoccupation of the Christian. The second source of Peter's praise in a much shorter point is that we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I've noticed over the years, and perhaps all of you have noticed the same thing, that suffering often has one of two effects on people. It either drives them away from God or it drives them toward him. uh, People either through their suffering become bitter and angry, thinking God, if he exists at all, certainly hasn't lived up to his end of the bargain. Or they respond like Peter. To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter writes that the Christian, the one who has experienced God's mercy, is like the child who runs into his parents' arms when he is suffering. 
And why can we do this? How can we endure suffering? The problem of suffering and evil is one of the great philosophical problems. How can a good God allow suffering and tragedy? Peter writes in chapter 4, We can endure suffering because Jesus also suffered in the body. Jesus understands our suffering because he endured suffering on our behalf. And he says that suffering only makes sense in the light of the cross. The cross doesn't answer why God allows suffering. But what it does tell us is what the answer can't be. And the answer can't be that God does not love us. While I was in college, I was with my best friend on the anniversary of his mother's death. And it had only been a few years since she had passed away. It was a very emotional day for him. And we decided that we would pray together. And I remember specifically praying that God would remind him that someday all his tears would be gone. And that there would be no more suffering and pain. And this is all very true. But I'll never forget my friend's response to me. He said, Stephen, I appreciate your prayer, but what is so much more helpful to me is to know that Jesus has felt and experienced pain like I feel. That I don't suffer alone. Johnny Erickson Tata, who became a quadriplegic at the age of 16, says, I could never trust a God who didn't suffer. On the cross, God, through the person of Jesus, suffered. His suffering was not ordinary suffering, but suffering on an infinite level. Jesus Christ is a God we can trust because he knows and understands our human suffering. A close, older friend of mine said in the face of a tragic and untimely death, Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of this makes sense and none of this would be bearable. Peter says that our living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is the third source of Peter's praise. Peter Not only saw Jesus die an excruciating death, but he saw him come back to life. And Peter is telling these Christians who are undergoing trials, suffering for their faith, that they can be certain of God's love for them. That their inheritance of eternal life and fellowship with the Father is a guarantee. And how strongly did Peter believe this? Well, not only did he suffer death for this truth, but legend has it that when he was crucified for his faith, he demanded that he be hung upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. It's ironic, isn't it? In the end, Peter did die defending his Savior. And furthermore, the Christian does not deny suffering 
nor does our living hope end our suffering or our grieving. But what the resurrection gives the believer in Christ is hope. An absolute certainty that this life is not all that there is. It is a living hope. A hope that has its eyes fixed squarely on Jesus. Though you do not Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In closing, I would just like to give three quick points of application. First, daily delight in your new birth, in God's mercy. In fact, I would encourage you to pray verse 3 as a prayer. Pray using a personal pronoun. Praise be to my God and Father. Thank you for the mercy you have extended me. Praise you for the new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Especially when difficulties come, praise God for your living hope. Meditate on the suffering that Christ endured on your behalf and realize that you are a beloved child. You know, praise is truly a means of grace for the believer. Gratitude built on the truths of God's grace result in praise, in awe, and in wonder. Second, this gospel compels us to go from, it compels us to truly loving others. We go from moralizing and judging to loving. I find it fascinating that Peter never plays the victim card. In fact, I can't think of anywhere in the New Testament that the victim card is played. I don't know about you, but I love playing the victim card. If you have lived more than a day, then you have experienced an injustice or an evil perpetrated against you. Several years back, I was the target of someone who thought cutting traps was a fun activity. And within a several month period, I lost over a hundred traps. It made me angry. It was unjust. It was costly. There was absolutely no reason for it. A random act of violence that cost me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I felt my heart drifting toward bitterness and anger. I prayed for wisdom. I wasn't sure how to respond. I had a good idea who it was. Do I punch the bully in the nose? Do I retaliate? And then, one Sunday in church, I stumbled on these verses from Hebrews. Remember the early days when you endured a great conflict in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to ridicule and persecution. At other times you were partners with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, knowing that you yourselves had a better and permanent possession. The Hebrew Christians joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. They didn't play the victim. Third, our motivations for living a holy life, for obedience, 
for doing good works is completely transformed. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Makes sense to me now. The Christian does not obey God out of cold duty, not to gain the Father's love, but because she loves the Father. Obedience is an expression of her love. Peter's letter both models and instructs us to live in a spirit of praise, a spirit of wonder. God's mercy, even in the face of trials and suffering, even while we are experiencing grief. When we find ourselves in difficult, trying circumstances, we don't have to become victims of those circumstances, but rather as we meditate on the mercy of God, as the truth of the gospel grows deeper and deeper into our hearts, then we can experience an underlying joy and a living hope. Because the refining of our faith is bringing about the salvation of our souls into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming salvation. And that is something to praise God for. Amen. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, what what amazing thing to ponder. Your mercy and love for us, for the ends that you went to, to bring us home, to reunite us with you, to take upon yourself the punishment that we deserved. Father, help us as a body, as a people, to delight in your mercy and in your new birth. And I pray, Father, that if there are those here today whom, whom, like Luther, thought they knew what it meant to live a moral, religious life, that they would have a breakthrough moment and realize that righteousness comes through faith by grace. Father, may our hearts this week be melted by that grace as we go forth serving you with hearts compelled by love. We are so grateful for Jesus. Even though we do not see you, Jesus, we love you. And you fill us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Amen.